0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Bellweather Digest podcast. This week we are joined by Dr. Heather Evans, who is a licensed clinical social worker and the director of Evans Counseling Services. She's based in Coopersburg, Pennsylvania and has over 20 years of clinical experience with a specialization in women's issues, particularly sexual trauma sex trafficking and the aftercare of its victims she received a doctor of clinical social work degree from the university of pennsylvania and her dissertation highlighted complex trauma and the post-traumatic growth in victims of domestic sex trafficking we are also joined by ingo cupido who will be helping us um, and talking about the south african perspective of these issues we hope you enjoy this episode thank you very much We can start off by just talking about your journey um, towards where you are now. So we just wanted to ask about, you know, where you grew up um, what that experience was like and and sort of how you got into, into counseling.
1: Great, thank you. Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania in the USA. We're in the Northeast and I lived about one hour north of Philadelphia. And I grew up actually in the home of a pastor. My father was a pastor. And I think um, having a pastor for a father, growing up in the church, having many people come in and out of our house, being exposed to their ministry, meeting people from many different cultures, I think it gave is part of what shaped me to have a love for people. And I always thought growing up, I was going to be a teacher. But at some point when I was a, te- a teenager, I realized if I was a teacher, I would have to teach. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to just sit with the kids and get to know them and know what's going on in their lives. And already when I was a child and teenager, I, I look at the books I was reading and they were books about children who were being abused or women coming out of prostitution. I think God was laying these things on my heart from a young age. But anyway, I knew I needed a a job that I could just get to know people. And so I learned about social work and learned that it's a job that it's a degree that's very broad. You can work with people in a variety of ways. And so that's the track I went with social work. Um, And as I was doing social work, as I said, the model of social work is to really look at a person in their environment. A person in a system. And so social workers do many different things. Some are advocates, some do administrative type work, some do work in law. Some are the ones who do case management and help other people find resources. But I knew I wanted to work with people in a way that would go deeply into their lives over a period of time and in a way that would bring change to them and their families. And so that's when I found about counseling or clinical social work. And that's the track I've been on ever since. I've worked in a variety of settings, but I've had my own counseling practice for Oh, 16, 16 years now. I have three other oh, wow. counselors that work with me and have been doing counseling, mainly clinical social work, doing counseling with people for a variety of different issues we work with. But I would say over the years, one of the main things that really started come to me, coming to me, and so therefore it became an area of specialization, or I should say an area that I have become an ongoing student, is that of trauma particularly sexual trauma, um, individuals who've experienced sexual abuse, that has become one of the main things that I've dealt with over the years in my counseling practice.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's that's pretty amazing. I wanted to ask, um, I know for a lot of people, like when they're going to college or to varsity, there's sort of this pressure of, well, you need to pick something that's gonna pay the bills. Um, and so maybe that's sort of the perspective here in Africa isn't? Did you have similar um, concerns when you were deciding what to study?
1: Yes, absolutely. When I decided, when I heard about social work and I decided that's what I wanted to major in, we have counselors at our schools called guidance counselors, and they are the ones you meet with and they help you to choose a university. And I remember my guidance counselor saying, you don't want to do social work. You're not going to make any money. And I remember thinking about it for a minute (laughs) and being (laughs) discouraged. I, and I just thought that's, that doesn't make sense. I just want a job that I'm going to love for, you know, some there's a saying here that some people work to live and some people live to work. And I realized I just wanted a job that was going to give me um, purpose in life and meaning in life and that God would take care of my needs. And thankfully, that has been the case. I have had no regrets um, for choosing that because it's something that does pay the bills, but also gives me a sense of meaning and purpose um, as I try to inspire hope and healing in others.
0: So amazing. And so would you would you consider counseling, like calling them, you know, like for some people? absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Just thinking, I-, I could never have done anything else yeah there's
1: a saying that there are two important days in the life the the day you are born and the day you discover why and i have a friend of mine and i and we call that our day number two when you discover why you were born when you discover your calling or the the reason that you are here on this earth something that gives you purpose and meaning and i can say this kind of work counseling work is definitely my day number two it's it's part of why I am here on this earth.
0: I'm assuming uh, it's, 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 a, it's probably a vivid experience. Is there like a particular day when you're like, this is it, you know, where you're talking to someone, were you're just walking in the streets, is there a day when it probably hits you that yeah, this is what I wanna do?
1: Yeah, that's, I would say if I can add, have two parts of that question. In some ways, I feel that way almost every day. I am blessed. I don't have any days that I do not want to go to work. There are many people that don't like their job. They don't like to go to work. I don't experience that. I find joy every day coming to work. But it was actually a a different kind of experience I had, which is another part of my story. And that was um, years later, I took courses in the Global Trauma Recovery Institute of which now I am one of the professors. And these courses are designed for people who want to learn more about trauma and the trauma happening around the world, but also want to make a difference. And it talks about how do you enter into people's lives or communities when they've experienced trauma in such a way that honors their culture and honors their strengths. And part of taking those courses was we went to the country of Rwanda. And at the time I was a student observing what my, what my professors were doing and how they were entering into the culture of Rwanda and coming alongside pastors, key community leaders, counselors, social workers, and equipping them, training them to understand trauma. I remember sitting in that room my first year going to Rwanda. Now I've been there seven times, I think. And I remember thinking exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. This is why I'm here. And I was like, wait, oh, what, right, is right. The, what is the this? I don't know. what What is it about this? I'm still trying to figure out what the this is. But I had that distinct moment. And I think what it was, was it was being in another culture And and the vibrance that comes when you meet people that are different from you, the richness that comes of shared experiences. It was relational. We were getting to know people, we were doing a training, we were equipping them, we were passing on skills, but in a relational kind of way. And I just think that was like the combination of my counseling background, my love for culture, my love for people, my my love, my heart for training and teaching since yeah. I was a young girl all combined into one and that's, that was another one of those moments for me.
0: Yeah, I know that, that sounds very great. Um, I'm keen to, to find out maybe you're obviously going, you've gone to run, you say you've gone to Ronda seven times and you've, you've worked on the African continent. Um, are there certain practices within counseling that, um, that you've learned from the people that you've You've been helping, or um, yeah. I'm asking, is, there, is there anything new that you've learned, you know, whilst on these trips?
1: Oh, there's so much I've learned. I think we learn more than we, you know, we go to teach and train, and we come back and learned more. Um, I, I think I've learned more about hope. I've learned more about faith. I've learned more about time. You know, Americans can be quite busy. And we like to move around and we like to be, you know, fast. And i learned more about the importance of listening and entering into people's lives and stories in a way that they feel seen and heard. And that as you do that, ultimately it changes you as the one who listens. Um, I've learned about community. Um, Again, around the world, people heal in different ways and we need to find out what is meaningful to that particular group of people and how they heal. Where for me, here in the USA, uh, one common practice is, it's becoming more common, I could say, is to come and meet with a counselor and to meet with them one-on-one. In some communities, they may not have that resource to meet with a counselor. So we have to think about, well, what's meaningful to that, that culture, perhaps meeting in a group and doing different forms of healing through through art, through dance, through music, um, there's different ways of healing and we have to understand what's meaningful to that culture. Those are just a few of the things I've learned.
0: Yeah, um, I'm just, Inga said she, she'd like to ask a question, so um, right. yeah, maybe she can ask something and then I'll, I'll follow up after that. Very good.
2: Yeah, either um, in one of our classes, you spoke about listening quite often and you see something so unique about the ability of listening and so I was just hoping for the sake of this podcast that you would share that
1: about the did you say the ability of listening
2: yeah and the importance of listening as we enter into our counselors'
1: worlds. okay I wish I remember what exactly I said (laughs) (laughs) well um here's something that I can say this I will talk about listening as the concept of bearing witness, which is, is not my terminology, but bearing witness is this idea of entering in to someone's story in a way that they feel seen, in a way that they feel heard. And it actually is quite costly to enter into somebody's story it, because it's often uncomfortable what we hear. It takes time. It takes patience. But it changes us as we enter in and we listen to someone's story. There's a woman named Sandra Bloom who is an expert on trauma around the world, and she says that bearing witness is the number one healing technique that is necessary for the kinds of crises that we're living in today. You know, we're, we've 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 seen we've seen genocide, we've seen. Um, just dictatorial control and oppression around the world. I mean, we're currently going through a global pandemic. And she says the best way that we can bring healing for some of these systemic collective issues is to bear witness. And that again, as we listen to others, as we enter in, it changes us as the listener. And all listening, I will add this, is cross-cultural. It doesn't matter if you are from a different country, if you have a different color skin, if you're from, It it, that doesn't matter. All listening is cross-cultural because we're entering into that person's life, their history, their perception of the world, their family. And so it takes us being a student of the other person. It takes us kind of giving up our power and even our assumptions. Sometimes somebody might say something and we might assume we know what they mean, but we ask them, can you explain what you mean by this word? And when they share it with us, it was much different than what we expected. So it really means laying aside our ideas in order to enter in to the world of another, to become equal with them in a way that they experience dignity because of the attention, the time,
0: the care and the respect that we're offering. Yeah, it's such a such a wonderful, wonderful concept. And I think the listeners will be quite excited to know that um, you've been so gracious as to to write a wonderful article that we're going to read soon. But I think in the article you really you really talk about you know, bearing witness and um, and what it means to truly listen. So
1: yes absolutely
0: yeah they've got something to look forward to. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, in terms of counseling, did you choose trauma specifically, or is it just something that comes with the job? Is there a particular reason why you chose trauma or, um, you know? That's a great question. I would say
1: trauma chose me. Um, There was a time I was asking myself as a counselor, should I be specializing in something, you know? Should I have that one thing that I say I bring? And, I didn't have to find it. It found me. Now, I would say that's also a picture of how much trauma there really is. It's really hard to find a case in a counselor's office that doesn't include some level of trauma. But it really just became more and more cases, particularly sexual abuse, were coming to me. And therefore, I needed to respond to that by becoming a student of these clients and becoming a student of trauma to really become equipped in order to respond to their needs. So I, I think that's another word for our listeners of encouragement when, you know, the times where we're trying to decide what is our day number two, what brings meaning yeah. to life? What should I do? You know, either what should I study at university or what job should I take? It, it tends to find us, whatever our calling is, it will tend to find us and choose us um, rather than us choosing
0: it it's amazing uh you so you it says you work specifically with um human trafficking victims um i'm assuming it means that you're not working with let's say people that are getting trafficked or so you, are you are you sort of working with them after they've been released or after they've been rescued again um what who are the kind of people that you that you're working with and helping Sure. Good question. Um,
1: That was another part of my calling that definitely found me. I, as I was learning more about sexual abuse and trauma, I started hearing more and more. This is over, my goodness, how many years ago was it? Well, maybe 15 years ago. um, I started hearing more and more about human trafficking and said, okay, as As a social worker, a counselor, a Christian, a concerned citizen, I need to find out what is human trafficking. And I started to read and it just captivated my heart and compelled me. Um, Again, something that I would have never chosen. um, But once I started learning about it, I knew I couldn't just walk away from this. I needed to do something but I didn't know what I was going to do. And for for years, I was just learning, reading, taking in any resources I could. I had a a mentor that would say to me, sharpen your tools and God will provide the work. So I was in a phase of learning for a few years and, and alongside some others as well. We didn't know what we were going to do with what we were learning. And a point came where we decided we need to move into action out of our learning phase and into action. And so um, again, this is a long-winded long journey to answer your question, but we we started a coalition or an an NGO in our region to address human trafficking. And we uh, addressed it in four different ways, prevention, awareness, which is really just doing a lot of trainings in the area. And prevention is, is both trying to address the demand, why there's even a demand for the commercial sex industry, as well as trying to train young people um, to prevent this from happening. Advocacy and aftercare. The aftercare portion is the piece that you're asking about, and that is the work that we do with trafficking survivors. We do some, I've heard personally do not, I serve on the board now, but we have, Um, Some outreach workers. We have staff that are trained to go out into the community at places where they can interact with vulnerable women, interact with women who are still um, victims or who are in prostitution in the hopes of offering them relationship and resources and, and options that if and when they want to leave, that there is help for them. I particularly have worked with those who have been separated from the trafficker anywhere from a few weeks, a few days to a few years, and am focused more on the, the aftercare piece in terms of the counseling and the trauma. But we have other people in our organization that help more with getting them the resources that they need when they first separate from a trafficker, because when they first separate from a trafficker, they need everything. They need clothing, food, shelter, Um, they need, they might need identification card, they may need uh, resources to help them because they're addicted to drugs. Um, So they need a lot of resources. And I have been focused on helping them with the counseling aspect. I do sometimes individual counseling. Our organization also has a support group for survivors and an annual retreat where survivors come together and we go away together for the weekend to give them an opportunity to be together, be out in nature, and just have time to rest. So those are some of the things I'm involved
0: in. That's great. Um, I want to ask: Is uh, <laughs> does the work ever get dangerous? Because I'm I'm thinking if if you're helping all these women, and surely on the other side of um, of this, you know, the people in the sex trafficking industry are, are losing. Uh, so is is the work dangerous? Are you you know, are they, do you have to be careful? Um, how do you navigate uh, that world?
1: Yes, we do have to be careful. Um, in some ways, we it 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 can be dangerous. We have to be wise in the way that we do things. Um, we work alongside law enforcement. We will never be in a situation where if we hear of some women that are trafficked. We're going to go into that house or into that business and we're going to rescue them and pull them out. That is not our, it's not our job. That's not our area of expertise, nor would I ever advise that. That is not only dangerous for us, but even more so it's dangerous for the women. So when we're interacting with women, I, we're, we're a little bit concerned for our safety. We're more concerned for their safety. If we give a piece of information, for example, and say, here, we are this organization we're here to help you leave. And she has a trafficker and is under the control of a trafficker who is abusive and violent. She may, get, she may get beaten for that. She may be killed for something like that. So more so it's dangerous for the women and we just need to be very cautious with how we're doing outreach and that we don't cross over our lines of what we can offer. Uh, but I would say the other sad reality to that question is as dangerous as it can be for the women, they're very often once a woman leaves, the trafficker is not coming to find her. He's moved on. He's moving on to recruit somebody else because that's part of the problem with with why this, this industry is so, it's making, it's so profitable. It's making so much money is because one trafficker can have multiple victims. And if he loses one, he may or may not come find her, but he might just move on to protect his own, to protect himself from being found out by law enforcement because he can just recruit someone else. It's a sad part of the reality.
0: um, Yeah, it's quite quite daunting stuff. I was, um, I watched uh, watched a BBC documentary the other time and um, the recruiters were not particularly male, but um, it was, I think it was a lady from Kenya that got recruited by another um, woman that was from Kenya and she was in China, I think. Um, and she was told, no, there's, there's work happening here. So just come come to China, we'll pay for everything. And then once you got there, you know, they took away her passport and, and everything. So are there any, uh, I especially got questions, like are there any ways that people sort of can protect themselves or are there any clues that we should look out for, you know, that maybe, you know, trafficking is, 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 is looming nearby?
1: That's a good question. I, I think first it's to really become educated on what trafficking looks like. And you gave one example of what trafficking looks like, this idea of recruitment from one even one country or one region to another. And in th- that case, it's a promise of something. It's a promise of come work for me. We will, we will, we will pay you this, we will offer you this. And it can sound really good, especially to somebody who is in desperate need. And, you know, there's a saying that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so that's one example of what trafficking looks like. And so I think for those cases, um, one can look for signs of those kinds of promises that just something about it doesn't feel right, um, what they're offering or maybe they're making up. They're saying, "Come work for us." And all kind of mind where where um, it might or their identity documents or don't know the language. There's something about their vulnerability that that you can see their vulnerability. That is a case where it might be it might be trafficking. It might be good to ask more questions. Another example, though, of trafficking that is much more difficult to see would be when trafficking happens within one's own town. You know that idea that we're traffic country to another, which does happen, yeah, but tra- like. I I remember one victim in our area said, no one came looking for me because I never went missing. And this was a little girl that on her way home from school, she was nine or 10 years old. A neighbor slowly built a relationship with her and eventually started selling her. In the, the couple of hours before her mom would come home from work, this neighbor would exploit her. He would sell her in prostitution. And then at a certain time, she would go on home. No one ever knew. And as she said, no one ever knew because I never went missing. Um, Those are examples of the promise is not necessarily, I'm promising you this job and this career and I will pay for you. But the promise of a better life in terms of love, affection, attention. So many times the, the trafficker isn't this, isn't what we picture, this scary, controlling man. It can be someone that poses as a boyfriend, a lover, a partner, and he, he gives gifts and he promises, I will take care of you and you can trust me. And he preys upon her vulnerability, vulnerability of poverty, vulnerability of a history of childhood abuse, vulnerability of an unstable family life vulnerability of someone who leaves home because they feel afraid at home or because they've been abused at home or because something about the home situation is not stable. And the trafficker preys upon that and says, I will take care of you. And eventually he forms his love relationship. He uses trust as his greatest weapon, his greatest tool, and eventually starts exploiting her. Those cases are much more difficult to see to the human eye. And if we do see them, we may misrepresent them. We may judge them and say, "Oh, this is this is um, this is prostitution. She's choosing it." Well, by definition, by federal definition, if she's under the age of eighteen, she is not choosing it. And we also need to know that a lot of women in prostitution they have a vulnerability that they are not choosing it. So in those cases, we're looking for situations where perhaps it's an older boyfriend. There's a change of behavior. She's someone is showering her with nice gifts. Um, she's. It's not she's not going to school. She's moving around from town to town uh, with a new with a new boyfriend. Those types of situations um, are more difficult to see. But once we are educated in human trafficking, we can start to know what to look for.
2: Yeah, and I sorry to jump in, Kuda, but I think yeah. that is so, also so prevalent in South Africa, especially. Um, we, we struggle to distinguish between prostitution and human trafficking. or We struggle to see the intersection of prostitution and human trafficking. And yes. so some of the comments you would hear, especially among the older generation is that, oh, be are a sex worker. Yes. And because our law is also so vague. Um, yes. so in, in my work, I would find that a lot of women that are incarcerated are in fact trafficked victims, but because we, we are so vague on the definition, we, we don't know how to fully understand or look up for them. So, and then it becomes their choice to commit this crime, and it leads them into a more devastating situation of incarceration. And then, yes. as they are released, they end up back in this vicious cycle. So, I think my question is: How do we, um, how do we make, how do we create awareness around the link and the intersection?
1: I would say it's education and to really know what all of the myths are about prostitution and be able to explain them. And also, I think explaining them in story form can be quite effective. So when you hear a story and you hear the vulnerability of someone in prostitution, that perhaps she first was... She first got in prostitution because she was sold by one of her family members for money for drugs that, that's trafficking. when you hear their history of abuse, when you hear the recruitment the, the, that the majority of women in prostitution do have someone that's controlling them in our in our culture it's often called a pimp The pimp is just a glorified term for trafficker. When you look at the lack of choices for these women and you explain, I think it takes a lot more education for people to see the lack of choice, that women who choose prostitution are either desperate, they've been forced into it, or they've been been taught that, that this is a viable option. The more we can do that, and I think in story form, It's very powerful because when you see the face of someone who has experiences, when you hear the progression of her involvement, it can build empathy and it can build a greater context for how this happens as opposed to just, she chose it or she's promiscuous. That's, that's really not the case. And that's just been my experience of working with these women and hearing their stories.
0: True. That's, it's so enlightening. I think even for myself, you still you just have these preconceptions about what you know what the situation is, but you don't you know you don't actually know what's happening. Um, so that's very enlightening. Even, um I looked online, and the um, the only which talks about post-traumatic growth online also talks about the Survivors Project. Uh, I look forward <laughs> to reading and see. Um, do you mind just going in and then uh, talking about the project as well?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so- The one, the newest, but it can really be found wherever you, you as well, um, on like Amazon, Google books, things like that. And I decided I wanted to focus on a study, some research on sex sex trafficking survivors. I wanted to take our learning to a deeper level in general. I think our society is doing better at understanding human trafficking and the basics of what it is but I wanted to go deeper to really understand survivors and also what they describe, what they find helpful and not helpful after their time of being trafficked. I wanted to hear directly from survivors. I didn't want to interview people who work with survivors. I wanted to hear from them directly and I wanted this study to variance. So I interviewed 15 survivors that was part of the research. The other part was I used a research methodology called photo voice. Take pictures to express their shared lived experience and use those pictures rather than words to express what they have been through collectively. So there are two parts of it. One, well, three parts, but actually participated in this part of it. Sorry, I had them take pictures. The only, the only prompt I gave to them was, that was it. And then the second part of photo voice is you bring them together and you have them share their pictures with each other. Now, the survivors that were a part of my study were from different places in the USA. So we met via Zoom versus uh, meeting in person. You can do it either way. We met online um, Mm -hmm. there and I asked them a few questions. I have them just process what they saw. I asked them, what do you see in these pictures? How do these pictures tell the story of survivors?
0: You're talking about, uh, you're talking about photo voice and how uh, sometimes like for the victims, it's hard for them to tell their stories again and again because they're reliving. That experience, and you know, the photos help them to express themselves in a different way.
1: Exactly, and so what came of their feedback was the Voices of Survivors project. And the Voices of Survivor Survivors project includes two parts: the book, uh, the, that's called "From the Voices of Domestic Sex Trafficking Survivors: Photographic Expressions of Complex Trauma and traumatic Growth." This book includes all of their pictures and captions. It can be a really a great, even teaching tool or awareness building tool. Yes. Um, so that's in book format. And the other part of this project is of a, a transportable or a virtual exhibit of all of the photos. I created this transportable exhibit and then COVID came. And so I hadn't been able to use it, but it's available for to be taken to awareness events, conferences, universities, wherever someone would want to create this display. But something powerful that came out of this time of COVID is uh, this idea of a virtual exhibit. And it can be an event where a group of people come together. I have organized some, but I am encouraging organizations if they want all of their staff to be trained or if they want to do something for their church or their region, we could do that together. And we go through the photos together and their captions. And then there's a time for people to also share what do they see and for people to react to how it's impacting them and to ask questions. I found that to be incredibly powerful and a great way for people to have more, to build more understanding and compassion and be inspired by the experiences of survivors. The other book is really all of the data. It includes some of the photos, but it goes in greater depth of the experiences of survivors and the recommendations that they give for what's helpful and what's not. And if it's okay, I'll just share a little bit about those two words that are really,
0: that came out of the
1: research and are, um, were the theoretical foundation for my research. Um, Complex trauma and post-traumatic growth. Complex trauma is describing the type of trauma that is planned, repeated, interpersonal in nature, and it it impacts a person in a variety of ways, including their emotions, their view on relationships, their way of seeing the world, their body, their having physical symptoms, their perception of self. Those are just a few examples of the impact of complex trauma. The term post-traumatic growth is this idea that someone who has experienced trauma, suffering, or difficulty can move beyond, can go beyond where they were at the point of first experiencing that trauma. Post-traumatic growth is um, includes a variety of ways of growth, such as spiritual growth, new, new um, beginnings, discovering new things, ways of seeing life, like appreciation for life, relationships, and what was so powerful in both my interviews as well as the photos is that all aspects of complex trauma and post-traumatic growth were seen in their photos and were also displayed or seen in their, their words from in their interviews. So the book, both books, the one through photography, the other through words, really capture the full experience of a survivor, not only the difficulties and complexity of the trauma they've experienced and the long-term impact, but also the growth that they have experienced, which is so powerful, just to see the hope that is born in them. We talked about calling earlier, the calling and purpose and meaning that is, is born in many of them, even to do something to help other women. The faith, that is, is grown in them It's so powerful because both books really give a whole comprehensive look at at both the, the horror and the terror as well as the hope, the inspiration, and the beauty of these
0: survivors. That's that's, that's, that's amazing. I wanted to ask, um, you've, you've done a previous um, podcast uh, episode with a guy and he was talking about the violence of language and he was talking about how, like, dismissive words can be violent in some regard because you know you're just dismissing someone else's experience someone else's past and, and what they've gone through um for people that are not counselors for you that are not you know doing social work and maybe Inga you can help us with this as well is how can we talk to survivors or people that have experienced trauma without dismissing their experience or yeah without you know, making it smaller than it actually is and, and, and empathizing with them as, as much as we can. Yeah,
1: Inka, would you like to answer that? Do you have thoughts? Yeah, truthfully,
2: um, some of my thoughts is probably going to echo some of the teachings that Heather has taught me. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the things that, because language is incredibly powerful, and I was actually thinking about um, a, a conference that I went to a couple of years ago, Um, and the fact that God used language to bring about life, I mean, he's God, he could have winked an eye and there would have been life, but he chose to use his words. And so I think our our words and language is such a powerful tool. And one of the things that we need to realize when it comes to, well, anybody that's suffered in some way or or another, that they felt that this sense of loss, the autonomy was, was ended or taken away to some extent. So when we do that with our words as well, we are doing exactly what the perpetrator has done. We are dismissing a, a real suffering, a real painful experience, a, a moment where we, your soul has been, has been brutally hurt. And so as counselors, we, we don't want to do that. We want to give them the impediments and give them and help ability to say, own your words, own your life, own your, your ability to make a choice. And when we, and so our words need to be hopeful and needs to be encouraged. Um, oftentimes, even silence is just such a beautiful tool. I am, um, from my personal experience, when I shared with a dear friend of mine what had happened to me, I appreciated that she said, I have nothing to say, but can I just sit here with you? And I think that spoke such volumes. <laughs> the silence spoke volumes because there was no assumption of what. My experience was, there was no assumption in even her ability to give wisdom into that experience, but just, I want to live this life with you. And I want to be a witness, as Heather said earlier, I want to be a witness to your suffering and to your pain and allow me to enter into your world. And so we want we want to be so sensitive and so compassionate as we use our words. And we, want to, we want to be able to help them build resilience as they own the autonomy again.
1: Yeah, well said. I cannot add much more to that, uh, besides saying that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to not know what to say. It's better to remain silent and say, "I don't know what to say," than than to say the wrong thing or to ask a survivor, "What you know? What what has been hurtful? What has been said to you that has been most hurtful?" Or when survivors have the courage to give feedback and tell you, not every not every survivor will, but when they have the courage to give feedback and say, "Please don't say that," and here's why I don't want you to say that, for us to have a humble teaching perspective, to apologize where necessary, to learn from that, and to, to then um, have that inform the way we see in the future. Those are some additional things I can add.
0: Um. I'm not sure if Inga has any other questions, but my final question to you would be, you know, if there's someone that's listening to this and and hearing your story and they're thinking, you know, I want to be like Dr. Evans, you know, what words of encouragement or wisdom or sort of um, practical tips uh, would you give them to sort of to reach the heights that you have or even to go further?
1: Yeah, well, I would... I would encourage everyone to fill the exact space that belongs to them in this world. And so perhaps there's something about me that's inspiring to them, but for each person it's going to look much different. We all have unique personalities, gifts, skills, talents, and even areas of um, influence that we belong to. And so we can look at those and say, "What can I do to make a difference?" Um, and it will look different for each one of us. But I think what I hope is that people are inspired to just do the next right thing. I, you know, when I look and see where I've come from in the last ten years, and I ask myself, "How did I get here?" I, I didn't plan this. I just made the next choice, and I was willing to make the next choice. I did take risks, and I was willing to enter in and to follow the calling um, and make a lot of sacrifices, but it's going to look different for each one of us. There's one of the women who participated in the study and one of the reasons she participated in the study is because photography was a point of healing for her. And the reason being is there was a woman from a local organization, a local community coalition that was a volunteer who had a camera that she didn't know what to do with and so she just wanted to give it to someone she gave it to this woman said i think you would be great at photography i'm not using this camera anymore do you want it this woman went on to use photography as a form of healing. she talks about loving she goes in nature and likes to see what is invisible to someone Um, and make it visible as a way of reversing her experience of feeling invisible during her time of being exploited she likes to appreciate and find beauty because of the you know it's the reversal of the ugliness of being trafficked and exploited i share that simple story to say you never know what that can do for someone you know someone who just donates a camera and it changes the life of a survivor so everyone is different and brings something different to this world. And we, we need everyone to make a difference and to find their day number two, to find the thing that gives them meaning. And I would love to just see if Inga, if you have anything you want to share. If you have seen the book, you have also participated in the virtual exhibit. What can you say about it um, from your experience? I'm kind of curious to receive your feedback. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I first attended the exhibit before I
2: received the book, um, and there was one particular story that really that really caught me. So one of the things that, and he I think I shared this with you. So um, I think we we tend to to forget that some of our own actions are also quite harmful in the the role that sex trafficking plays and one of those things is pornography and i actually had a friend come and visit and he this book was on the table and he was going through the book and you know he he, he had struggled with, with porn addiction for quite some time and he came to this particular participant story and it was so raw and so vulnerable and and i just think she is so incredibly brave for, for putting it out there and and, you know, in that moment, it clicked to him it was like, it's not just damaging to myself, but I am playing a part in the abuse and the harm of so many women and children. And, and you know, like one of the things since am see in the book, I intentionally leave it on the coffee table. It makes people uncomfortable, <laughs> and that's okay. I like that it's making them uncomfortable. I love that, you know, they are paging through it, and they are seeing pictures of hope and beauty pictures of i mean the picture of of the of the dishes for example i hate doing dishes and here this woman is rejoicing in the fact that she has the choice to wash her own dishes and and i think it's just one it, it, it creates a sense of gratitude in my heart for the fact that i have my autonomy and that's how oftentimes i take that for granted just the beauty of hope, even in the midst of so much trauma and suffering, is astounding. Um, the first time I entered the ex- exhibition, I had to put my, my screen, my video off, because I was sobbing. I could not control my tears. Um, and it was both painful tears, but also just tears of such tremendous joy that <laughs> there is life. That there is a life after such painful suffering, um, and then when I received the book and just having and having it in my hands and going through it often and and it's inspired so much of my work in prison ministry and even in my community. Um, I I realized that, like we we take for granted the ability of a camera. We take for granted the ability of our words, as you said, and we. Just to realize that we need to realize that there is so much suffering in the world and our place in this world also is to provide that hope, to provide that sense of resilience, to come alongside, to be a friend, a system. And and I think it's, it's it was just so amazing, it's so astounding. Um, I highly recommend that everybody should join the exposition to get this book. It's, it opens your mind and, op- and changes your perspective. I, I would be a hypocrite if I said that a lot of my views on prostitution was not similar to, to some of my grandparents or older family members. I, I held the same view. And then, but as I be a witness and be a witness in the stories that comes from this book and makes you realize even that deception is almost incredibly harmful, it's that deception that also in this woman from receiving the, the healing that they had deserve. And so, yeah, in a nutshell, I just think it's, it's excellent work either. Absolutely excellent. Um, and, it's, and it's one that, you know, every time I read it, I find myself being like, oh, my word, I just want to hug you and say that you are a superhero. The fact that you are sharing your story, the fact that you're being so brave, so open, um, I would want to hide in a corner. My face, but here you are, grasping your healing and your hope, and you are saying, I want to show this to the world. I think it's just
1: so beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. I, that's really touching. I'm quite proud of it, um, only because I view it as my role and responsibility to carry on the voices of these women. They've entrusted them to me and to us, whoever will listen. And so I really believe in this work. I think it's quite powerful when everyone to be exposed to both both books, both the opportunities to do the virtual exhibit, uh, the photo book, as well as the other book. There's so much rich wisdom, knowledge, inspiration and hope. I've learned so much from these women and I just want to pass that on to others
2: my next question is how do i get you to south africa oh that
1: is such a tempting question i mean you just have to invite me and make it happen i am a i'm a why not kind of person so someone invites me if there's a need if there's a request i'm i'm there so seriously can invite me we can talk about it i would love to come yeah we need to make that happen okay (laughs)
0: <laughs> um. so yeah so you've got the two books you've got the project is there anything that we should like watch out for anything that's um that's on the books um you know how can we follow you and and know what you're doing and where you are and and, and get involved in support
1: yeah well I can give you all of my contact information I have a website i now trying to be a little bit more active on social media. I have a new Facebook page, Dr. Heather Evans LCSW. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Heather Evans and and my website as well. I don't have anything specific right now. I'm really just focused on how do I get the word out there about these, these two books in particular. But what I will tell you is the Voices of Survivors project, my dream is to make it an ongoing like, living photo exhibit of the work of survivors. I would like to do kind of a part two, maybe within the next year, um, and had, and invite survivors from around the world who are following this work to contribute their photos, and together do a collective project. So that's something that, I, like I said, maybe in 2022, I'm hoping to launch that through social media. You can also separately follow the Voices of Survivors project, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, as well as my website, the Voices of Survivors Project. Just search for that on each of those, and uh, that's where we'll be kept updated. Up, updated on any future projects as well.
0: Amazing. Um, yeah, I think I think that, that just about sums up the interview. Thanks so much, um, Inga, for for organizing this. Uh, thank you, Dr. Evans. I think. I was just thinking about I was listening to a song yesterday that talks about listening to stories and being um, a voice for the voiceless but I think what you're doing is you're listening to stories and empowering people to to speak up about their own experience so it's it's amazing work it's inspiring work and we're so we're so glad that you've joined us and that you've you've given us so much to to talk about so much to share with the people and hopefully that you know it will empower others you know, to, to seek for help and, and to help others in their time of need. Um, thank you very much.
1: Absolutely. Oh, thank you. This has been such an honor. I do hope it's an inspiration because we need more people to be aware, to respond, to take action, and just just to listen, yes. to enter into the lives of others. So thank you for creating this platform for people to learn more.